Good evening, Doxology. My name is Leo, and I am a member here. I'll be doing the scripture reading today from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. Feel free to follow along on the Bibles. These Bibles right here, um, they belong to Christ Church of Arlington, so if you use them, please kindly return them. We also have light blue Bibles in the back. Those are our gift to you, so if you choose to keep them. Uh, again, that's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Good evening, friends. It's just warm enough not to wear a sweater, but cold enough to wear a jacket, so sorry about my attire. Uh, But you all dress very hippish, so uh, (laughs) I'm trying to blend in. I'm supposed to introduce myself. Um, I'm a friend of uh, Pastor Steve, and uh, that's about it. Uh, we planted our church 11 years ago, and so uh, I was sharing with Steve earlier, you know, when you're a church planter, you always look forward to, like, the next stage, because you think that the next stage will be easier, and it's a lot like parents, like, you think the next stage will be easier, and it just comes with its own problems, and then you actually miss the stage before, and so I want to encourage you, um, this, is a, this is a fun stage to be in. Uh, I remember when we were 20, and then 40, then 60, 80, and then you go back down to 40, and then, <laughs> and then when, you, when you're too many, and so um, it's good to be here with you all. Um, and I was so impressed by John, how, I don't know how you do that, you play and you drum at the same time, so I was very distracted, I was mesmerized. Okay, <clears throat> anyway, Hebrews, Hebrews, all right. Um, last year, our church, we preached through the entire book. And um, so I told Steve, if he needs a break this year, I can come anytime because it's not that much more work. But, <laughs> so, but this was our main message for the entire series. It was this. Uh, keep running together. Together. Jesus is better. Keep running together. <clears throat> and because the book of Hebrews is all about perseverance. Perseverance. And um, I say this because, you see... Um, it's actually really easy to meet people who are enthusiastic and uh, about 
the faith or anything, marriage, um, a job. But more and more, it's actually hard to find people who last a long time. Perseverance is a very hard thing. And um, so the book of Hebrews is all about the author wants people to persevere, but he realizes that you can't do it alone. So this is why persevere together in Jesus, because Jesus is better. And so today I just want to talk about um, three things, uh, but one main thing is just perseverance. But and one is this, Jesus is better uh, in the sense that he can actually take away our sins. What does that mean? Okay, so that's what Jesus can take away our sins. Number two, how should we respond? <clears throat> and then finally, number three, uh, what, what that response looks like. Okay, really simple. Okay, Jesus is better in the sense that he can actually take away sins. And then number two, how should we respond to Jesus' atonement? And then what that looks like. Okay, so number one, Jesus is better. Um, we live in a really interesting society. Um, I know you all are about witnessing this year, uh, which again is ironic because our church is doing a series on Acts this year. And this is the theme, witnesses to the ends of the earth. Um, must be the spirit or <laughs> no. But, um, you know, something that's really helpful to keep in mind. So this is one of the main trends nowadays. You see, even up to 20, 30 years ago, you could assume that people had like a biblical worldview. Like things like God, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, those were words that were meaningful. Now if you talk with the average person, especially the closer you get to Arlington and um, Washington, D.C., is this. It's the idea that what we need saving from is the idea of uh, saving, right? Like we, we need to be saved from believing that we need to be saved. This is the pervasive idea today. And so if you try to talk with just your secular neighbor, um, colleague at work, friend, um, the very notion that, hey, you need Jesus to save you has become more and more alien, okay, at least theoretically. I want to suggest something to you. So this passage talks a lot about blood. Have you noticed? Like, verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, bloody sins, which can never take away sins. And then... <clears throat> The author goes on to say, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, meaning it was done. And then verse 18 says, where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. So what's going on here? And let me propose something to you. And just consider it. You may not agree, uh, especially if you don't count yourself a Christian, but you're here. I think that's amazing. Sunday, 530, you're here. I think God must be working in you, or <laughs> like you must have a persistent friend or family member. But so just be open to this. Just consider this for a moment. Everyone has blood on his hands. Everyone. Maybe not literal, but guarantee every person in this room, as much as you have suffered, and so people have wronged you, mm, it's not a stretch to say that every person in this room has blood on his hands. And you know there are, you've done at least one thing in life that um, you're ashamed of. You are. Uh, it's that thing you will never put on Instagram, right? It's the thing that you actually hope no one will ever find out about. And this is what's really interesting. I think it's really fascinating because as much as people say we need salvation from the idea of salvation, right? That's not quite the case because you see, when you have blood on your hands, there's this thing called guilt. And generally, there are only two ways you can handle this. Okay? There are only two ways you can handle this. One is this. <clears throat> you try to buy into this um, 
cultural narrative that you should never feel guilty. So it's interesting. By the way, in past generations, they called that delusional or psychotic. Just, just, just keep this in mind for a moment. But you know what happens like when you believe in this narrative? Okay, like, uh, no, like guilt is bad. I shouldn't feel bad about myself. I'm not going to listen to anyone. This is what happens to your conscience. The Bible actually uses a really helpful image. The Bible says it's like when you sear a steak. You know how like when you, it's at high temperature, and then you drop the steak and it sizzles, right? And then you're searing it. And the Bible says that what happens there is that when you try to deny guilt, your conscience becomes seared. It's a seared conscience. Or in the Old Testament, it says a hardened heart. And what's really scary about this, when you see it in real life, is that the more you deny you have blood on your hands, you actually become less human, less human. I vividly remember, I've been pastor for, um, I've been pastor a long time. Uh, you know, I, I think I, I shared this with you, just as an aside, um, I'm Asian, so I have some right to make fun of Asians, but we are like, we are like forever young, and then we are decrepitly old. We never go through like this normal aging process, right? And so I still get carded. Um, and so uh, but I've been in ministry for a long time. And I remember this one instance, actually more than one instance. This spouse had cheated on her husband again. It wasn't the first time. And um, yeah, I was there trying to do my pastor thing, just being there most of the time. <laughs> and um, so she tells him, yeah, I, uh, I cheated on you again. I thought her husband responded in a very normal way. He just began to weep because um, it hurts. Like, you know, when the one you've made a covenant vow to has cheated on you. And then her response was fascinating. Her response was, I'll just grow up, be a man. Like, why are you crying? And um, it was very interesting to see that. Um, because you would think, <laughs> like, you would think, uh, I don't know. But you see, what's going on there is when your conscience becomes seared, you actually lose your humanity. And this is why I'm not just coming to you as a Christian minister. I'm just coming to you as one human being to another. That by trying to suppress your guilt, in the process, you do become less human. It's actually a scary thing. And the longer you do it, you just become unfeeling. And that's why, by the way, friends, when you read in media about like these monsters, these terrible people that do terrible things, right? And you think, oh, I could never become like that. You see, you've bought into this idea that somehow they're fundamentally different from you and me. It's, that's not the case. It's when you suppress guilt, right? You just get hardened. And you actually lose your humanity and you become a monster in the process. You do. And so this is what I want to suggest to you. That's one route where, okay, you can deny guilt, like suppress it and do whatever you want, but in the process you lose your humanity. Maybe that's what some of you are doing right now. I don't know. And um, it's a scary thing. And maybe that's why God brought you tonight. I don't know. But on the other hand, there are those of you that you don't suppress your guilt, 
you feel your guilt. And what you try to do is you try to atone, right, in your own ways for your guilt. So again, you know, one of the things, again, that's so interesting in ministry is this. So, you know, when you're especially a planter, you meet someone that's really willing to serve. I mean, they're willing to do anything and everything under the sun. In one sense, in one sense, that's a gift. But in another sense, you sort of begin to ask what's going on there. What's going on? Because one of the things that you find more often than not is that people who are so driven to do good, I'm not saying everyone is like this, but I'm sure you know people who are like this, usually they've done something egregious in the past, and they're trying to atone for it in the present. And you see, what ends up happening with that is, if that's you, and that's your way of trying to handle guilt, it's like trying to fill a bucket with water, but the bucket is full of holes. No amount of effort in your life can wash away the blood on your hands. You see, and, um, and you know, of course, you're welcome to disagree with me and so forth, right? Um, but let me suggest something to you. You know what's really helpful? Read memoirs. See, whatever philosophers talk about, these academic philosophers, right? When you read memoirs and when you read, when you listen to people's stories, they're more honest, and usually people fall into these two buckets. You're either trying to atone for your own sins, you're trying to wash the blood off. Usually it's by living a very good life, but you discover no matter how good of a life you live, you cannot like, just remove the stain. Or you lose your humanity. You see? You have one of those two options in general. And in that context, we have the gospel. Right? And the gospel is um, its really, I don't know how else to admit it, the gospel is really good news because this is what God does in the gospel. God comes and he actually makes us own the depth of what we have done. He doesn't say, you know, no, 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 I'm just a God of love. And by the way, anyone that believes uh, or says he or she believes that in a God of love, there's no way you can worship that kind of God. By the way, you know why? If you serve a God of love who doesn't care about any form of injustice, those of you that have suffered injustice, could you come on Sundays and just worship a God of love who does not care about punishing for sin? No, you can't. It's just uh, silly. You see, what's amazing about the gospel is you have a God who forces you to acknowledge that you have blood on your hands. He forces you to do it because he's a God of justice. He does. Right? He never says, oh, let's just forget about it. He says, you need to confess what you did. But not only does he make us own our sin, through his son, he atones for our sins. This is why the author of Hebrews is saying, the blood of Jesus is better, because his blood can actually make you clean. See? And so that's why the author of Hebrews says rightly, Jesus is better. And I just want to, wherever you are, I want to encourage you in this way. Listen, if you are the type, you're trying to deny your guilt, and you feel like you've done a good job, ask yourself, like, have you lost yourself in the process? It's, it's a scary thing. And to you, God comes and says, you need to own what you've done. 
Or if you're the type that you are trying to just scrub away the blood on your own, the blood on your hands, through good works, eventually that's going to kill you. It will, in some shape or form. God says, there is one who has suffered in your place. So that this is why the author says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. You see, that's good news. On the cross, we're told that what Jesus did, it's enough. It's enough. And when you get this, this is what begins to happen. You actually become a human being again that is free. It's free. You're able to own your past. You're able to actually cry. You're able to laugh. And you're also free from feeling like, unless I do A, B, and C, I'll never be clean. The gospel says that in Jesus, you can be clean. That's the good news. And I feel like we could end there. Except Pastor Steve included verses 19 to 25. So I have to uh, comment a little on these verses too. But actually, they are connected. So um, uh, let me just make some comments. So that's number one. What has Jesus done? But yeah, I really feel like we could just stop there and say like, and the main point is like, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sins. Hallelujah. And that's why you should go witness. The world needs to hear that. But number two, how should we respond? Uh, you notice it's really interesting the way this author says. He says, therefore, since da 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 and then finally verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart. And then verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And then finally, number, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So number two, how are we to respond to what God has done? Because you see, the more you understand the cross, this is what happens. You begin to understand like, wow, like God is really, really, really good. And by the way, this is the normal human response. You notice the author has to say, if you, under the, if you understand the gospel, then draw near, come closer. Why is he saying come closer? Because our natural inclination is to stay far away, and this is why. There are two illustrations I, I can give to you. Um, what's her name? She's the African-American comedian, Tiffany Haddish, I think. In her memoir, it's called like The, Blast, uh, the, the Last Black Unicorn, something like that. It was a great memoir. It was actually uh, very entertaining. But there's this one section I'll never forget. So basically, her, in her life story, her father had abandoned her. Right, and um, later on, Tiffany Haddish like somehow found him. This is after she became famous, very successful, uh, had lots of money, and so she went out of her way to reach out to her father, which I think is amazing, and just let him know, "I forgive you. I have lots of money. Let's have a relationship. Whatever you need, I'll take care of it. Bygones be bygones." Right. In her, mem- in her memoir, she says something really interesting. The more she tried to show him goodness, the more he would repel her. Like The more he would just keep at a distance. And so finally, one day she asked her friend, she goes, what am I doing wrong? Like, what am I, I'm not asking him for anything other than let's be in each other's lives and I will... You know, I will sponsor everything, but just, let's just be in each other's life. And her friend says something very insightful. Her friend said, your goodness brings out his badness. 
your light reveals his darkness. It's very insightful. And that's why the um, author of Gospel of John says, we love the darkness. Because the more we encounter someone that is beautiful, someone that is good, what happens? You see your ugliness. You see your evil. And we can't stand to see reality. And so we go away. You see, that's the natural uh, human response. And that's why we want to stay at a distance because, you know, and John mentioned this. Um, he talked about every time someone saw Jesus, they actually didn't run to him. They would run away from him because he is so good. I was reminded of this recently, one of my church members. Um, these, are, by the way, pastors have like, some pastors should write a memoir. We have like really interesting stories. Like sometimes you meet with members and they like just drop one nu- nuclear bomb after another. Like, oh my goodness, recently I met with a member and he goes, yeah, I'm adopted. I'm like, you never told me this, <laughs> right? And um, he's like, yeah, I was adopted. And, um, and then he told me that um, and he found his mom, his mom that had given him up. And um, he really wanted a relationship with his mom. And he turned out fine. And he told me that their relationship is full of conflict because in a weird way, she cannot stand to see him, cannot stand to see that he became such a good man because that draws out her own guilt and like, her own sense of failure. And this is why the uh, author says this, you see, and this is why grace is really the most beautiful and powerful force in the world. It's just, if you really understand grace, here you have a God who is so holy, he's so holy, that he hates sin. I mean, he hates sin to the point that he would send his only son to die for sins. And yet, he's also so loving that he knows the only way for you to have any chance is what? is for him to send his son to die for you. See, in the cross, justice and uh, mercy, they come together. And our natural response when we see something like that is not to run to it, but to run away from it. And that's why the gospel is saying even tonight to you, come near. Come near to the one who does not expect perfection from you. He just expects, right, that you come with nothing to offer and therefore holy trust in Jesus. So that's how we should respond. We should draw near. And um, maybe maybe you need to do that. Uh, it doesn't matter where you are in terms of your faith. Maybe you feel like you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you feel like you're a skeptic, wherever it might be. But the invitation of the gospel is come near because Jesus has made a way. I hope you will consider that. And, you know, whatever might be keeping you from him, there are so many reasons. We don't have time to get into them. Some of it might be intellectual respectability. You don't want your friends to think, oh, you're a fundamentalist, you're a Christian. You know, Maybe some of you, you just still struggle with your own guilt. Or maybe some of you, I don't know, like you have like an agenda in life. You're like, okay, I'll come to Jesus a little bit later on when A, B, and C. No, the invitation of the gospel is to come now. Come now, draw near to him. But what does this response actually look like? So let's end with just one, a few comments on verse 24 and 25. So the author says this, let us consider how to stir one another um, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, so, so for some of you, this idea of like, okay, what does it mean to draw near to God? Like, you know, that's a great question. Like, so what does that mean? And, you know, this is why one of the funniest movies ever, you know, like Meet the Fockers, right? There's this great scene where he's asked to pray, and he's like, okay, almighty Buddha. You know, like, it's just like this is a hybrid syncretistic prayer because even now you might be sitting here and you might think, okay, what does it mean to draw near to God in Jesus? What does that mean, right? And the great thing is this. The author of Hebrews keeps it very simple. He says, if you want to draw near to God, it means you have to, like, join a church and basically become a member. You see, you cannot separate Jesus and the church. I know, like, that's really popular in our society today. Like, I have a relationship with Jesus. I want nothing to do with the church. That is everywhere, right? Maybe you struggle with that. But the reality is this is why the author is saying you cannot run and persevere on your own. You have to run together. You have to run together. And, um, and what that means is you fully join a church. But even then, and this is my last just point I want to uh, consider with you. I was trying to think about what is the best way to explain like what it means to be a good church member. What does it mean to really join a church? Join a church, right? And um, I have this illustration I think it's terrible, but it might work, okay? <laughs> like, I told my wife, and she's like, mm. and I said, you haven't been to seminary, so I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> but what does it mean to be a good church member? And I think that this is what the author is saying. Look at the language here when he says, not neglecting to meet together, so that's um, regularity and proximity. And then he says, and encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, meaning um, you actually love one another enough that this crazy idea that you actually care if one another makes it to heaven or hell. I know it sounds crazy, right? But what's the best way to understand this? And I think actually this is helpful. Let's go back to the Old Testament and let's look at the first murder ever, right? Cain kills Abel. By the way, when you have two sons, you read that story very differently. It's very, it's actually very weighty. Like, brother kills brother. So after Abel dies, Cain has guilt. Right? Obviously. So God calls out to him. You see what God is trying to do? He's forcing Cain to own the situation. He says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain's response, let me tell you, is actually a summary of the gospel. This is why. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Should I know where he is? Should I know of his well-being? Should I be with him? So he's saying, God, am I my brother's keeper? You know what the true brother says? Jesus, yes, I am my brother's keeper. You see, the reason why Jesus and Cain are perfect opposites, right, is because Jesus came and he says, I am my brother's keeper. I have come near. I have made you my friends. 
And by my death, right, you now belong to the family of God. And then this is why the Bible says, now you go and do likewise. And that's why this breaks this idea that, you know, Christianity and spirituality is my, my personal walk with God, my personal relationship with Jesus, right? The entire point of, um, actually, Hebrews is this. And this is hard to understand if you don't have a good sense of yourself, but the author of Hebrews is saying this. You're not going to make it to the end. You're not going to persevere. Your guilt will overcome you. You will forget the gospel unless you have brothers and sisters in your life, members, who say, yes, I am her keeper. I am his keeper. Because that is what Jesus has done for us. And so I want to encourage you, right, um, if and when you do this well, I mean, this is outrageous, and uh, thankfully, you know, Pastor Steve will be here to unpack this for you (laughs) in the next uh, weeks, but that's what it means to be a good member, to give Cain's answer, but to say, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? Yes, because Jesus was my keeper. This is what it means for us to be good church members, to live life together. So I want to encourage you in closing, right? Wherever you are in terms of guilt, look to Jesus. But the gospel also says, look to one another. This is how Jesus meets you in this place. Okay? Let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for this church. And um, church plants are hard, very, very hard. But they're also worth it. They're also worth it. And um, thank you that the good news is not that we have to deny our guilt. It's not that we have to atone for our own guilt. It's that your blood is enough. And that's what we're about to celebrate. Your blood is enough to wash our sins, but the way you keep us until the end is when we become the, the anti-Cain's, when we become men and women who love one another enough to say, I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. Thank you that you have always been our keeper. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So.